Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Last weekend, I, I hit a bit of a wall. As our live stream struggled, something snapped inside of me. And the frustration and the discouragement and anxiety that all of us have felt in a variety of ways and in a variety of measures in these days, all of that came to roost in my heart. And I woke up on Monday with just a weight on my chest and a weight on my shoulders, exhausted from flexibility, exhausted from learning new things, exhausted from the constant trying. And on Tuesday morning, a friend texted and in that conversation, I, I had the room I needed to be honest, and he had the wisdom to offer encouragement and, and challenge in all of the right places. And that conversation, and along with other conversations I had with many people this week, including staff, they, they helped me find respite and release, and the weight was lifted off of my shoulders. And, and while the more pressing distress was gone, I could relax and I could relax and, and, and be at peace. I found inside of me a an ache that remained. And that ache was for something more than for our physically distanced experience of social uh, of spiritual family and community. Zoom calls are fine. FaceTime, Google Duo, sure. They're good, or at least good enough, and they work for now. But what we are coming to realize, that slow ache is the starvation from the one thing that our diets lack, the one thing that God built us to be nourished on, which is in-person, face-to-face, life together. The truth of the matter is that we are made for community. Studies show that people who live in isolation die earlier and have more significant health concerns. And while our exile and isolation is on some level very real and very physical. It's also spiritual. We have been cut off from that which gives us life and roots us and grounds us in love. And as we turn the pages of Scripture into this letter written by Peter, we find him addressing a, a people who are having a similar experience. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. But but first, let's just have a little bit of a reminder about what is happening in this letter. In this letter, Peter, who is a close friend of Jesus and one of the leaders of the early church, he, he's writing to a group of Christians scattered across modern-day Turkey. They are Gentile Christians. They are Gentile Christians, which means that they do not have a Jewish ancestry or a Jewish background like many of the first followers of Jesus. Instead, these are men and women who are steeped in the Greco-Roman culture of the first century, steeped in polytheism, steeped in nationalism, steeped in the intellectualism of, of, the, the, of the Roman day. And these Greco-Roman men and women became Christians when someone came and preached the good news to them. And the preaching of that good news evoked in them an act of God's grace. It evoked in them faith. And when they placed their faith in Jesus, 
when they placed their faith in Jesus, Peter says they were born again. Now that phrase born again has some pretty strange connotations to it. Sometimes it's a little pejorative. Oh, they're born again is code for, oh, they're crazy. But there's a shred or kernel of truth in even the pejorative use of that that describes the radical transformation that comes along with putting our faith in Jesus. And when these early Christians put their faith in Jesus, two things happened. When they were born again, two things happened. First, they became like exiles and aliens and sojourners wandering in a place far from their true home, which is heaven. But the second thing is, even while they are exiles and sojourners who wander far from home, Peter says the other thing is that by being born again, they became part of the family of God. And, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, that's a major theme, is what it means to be part of God's family. And, and Peter continues into that theme here in chapter 2, paying attention to not just the nature of our family, but also the place where a family lives. So let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10 today because I want to look at verses 1 to 3 and 11 and 12 next week. There's a lot there, and I just want to be able to divide and conquer. So let's start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. He says, As you come to him, him being Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In these verses, Peter adopts family language, but then pivots it to talk about a house, a house that he says his readers then, and you and I now, by faith, a house to which we belong. He tells us that we have come to Jesus, a living stone, a living stone by the virtue of his life and resurrection, a living stone who, on the one hand, is rejected by men, and he gets into that in verses 6, 7, and 8, rejected by men, but at the same time, in God's eyes, chosen and precious. Now, remember, throughout these chapters, Peter is borrowing uh, actual events from the history of God's people Israel from the Old Testament and even passages of scripture and applying them to his non-Jewish, non-Israelite readers. He's quoting a lot in here from Psalm 118. Jesus is a living stone, Peter says. And in verse 6 he says he's not just a living stone, he's the cornerstone, the foundation on which this house is built. Jesus is a living stone, and by faith in him, I become like a living stone as well, being built together, he says, into a spiritual house. And there's two meanings to this idea of spiritual house. On the one hand, a house is where a family lives. This family language that's been all the way through chapter 1 and even now into chapter 2, he continues it by saying, you're not only part of God's family, you belong to his house. You're the house, you're the family, you belong here. Peter is writing to people who feel homeless, and they feel homeless, ironically, in their own houses. They feel homeless in their hometowns. They put their faith in Jesus one day, and the next, their ordinary going about their life kind of days were radically different. 
And Peter says, even if you and I feel far from home, we still have a house. We still have a home. We find ourselves at home when we root ourselves in community with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In this spiritual family God's creating as he has promised to do. So on the one hand, a house is where a family lives. On the other hand, a house is also where God dwells. The house that Peter starts to build up the imagery for in chapter 2 isn't just any house. It's the house where God made his name to rest in the Old Testament. It's the temple. It's temple imagery. He's talking about us being living stones, being built up into God's house, his temple, and that we also act as a holy priesthood. In the Old Testament, God lived or dwelt in a temple. He, God exists everywhere, and yet he made his name to rest in a special way, in a focused way, in a manifest way, in the temple in Jerusalem. And in that temple, there were priests, and a priest's job is to represent people to God and represent God to people. They're a mediator. They're a go-between. The priests in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, were a special class. But now Peter says something absolutely radical. He says that we are all priests in this new temple. And we'll explore this idea of priests in a minute. But I want you to notice that you and I together, the people of Jesus, the community of faith, are the place where God dwells. He's not found in a building made by human hands. He is found wherever his people wherever his people gather to offer a sacrifice of holy living, like it talks about in Romans 12, 1 and 2, or a sacrifice of praise, like it talks about in Hebrews chapter 13. We're getting a, a little theological and technical, and that's not the only time that's going to happen in this particular text. But if we hang on a second and drill down into this, We're going to mine out some real gold that could really radically change how you and I live. Because a key question to ask in this text is this. Am I a temple by myself or am I only a temple when I'm with other people? In fact, I was in a conversation last week where we were discussing this. Throughout the New Testament, we find that the presence of the Holy Spirit, who is God himself, the presence of the Holy Spirit rests fully, dwells fully in every believer from the very moment they place their faith in Christ. And for that, look at a passage like Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. By myself, in any room, the presence of God is fully present to me by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. But that said, the you are a temple in this passage is actually, in the words of Texans, a y'all. It is a plural It is a plural. So strictly speaking, Peter is saying that we together are a temple, which is why, here's what I want you to hear, there is a unique grace and a special blessing found when we gather together in worship and in holy living. Whether that's in the large-scale gathering of worship or a smaller community for discipleship and training and care or even just a one-on-one conversation for encouragement like my friend who texted me this week, there is a special and unique grace, a special blessing, a unique grace found when we gather in worship and in holy living, which is why there is a deep ache 
in our hearts for fellowship and community and spiritual family. Why some of you have been commenting on today's live stream, I just like, I saw somebody write, I like worshiping in my pajamas, uh, but I, I really do miss my spiritual family. And there is an ache that comes from not being together. And it doesn't even have to be in this room. There's just an ache that comes from the lack of experiencing the presence of God like we do when we gather in holy living and in worship as a temple. See, God reserves this special blessing of his presence and grace for our gathering. And here's why he does this, whether the gathering is a small community of believers or the, or the public gathering. He does this to draw lone rangers back to him. Christians are really good at producing lone rangers. Uh, maybe they're cynical because they've been hurt by a church. Maybe they're proud because they don't like to submit themselves to leadership. Or, or maybe they're just a little apathetic and a little too convenience-oriented. And so I'll, I'll go to church whenever I can. But what God does is by creating an ache in us, by offering a special grace and a unique blessing to the gathering, it creates this thirst and even lone ranger Christians to come back to him. It creates this thirst, which why some of you may be watching and on the one hand are entirely in your comfort zone because you've peaced out on church or it's really convenient for you to be able to tune in for a little bit right now and then tune back out. I was reading a blog post this week that suggested that I count for attendance one-minute viewers. I refuse. Uh, but the convenience or the cynicism or the pride will ultimately leave you thirsting for something, and it's to be with God's people. It's to be in that gathering place to experience God in the unique way that he presents himself to us when we gather with his people, when we gather in discipleship and training communities, uh, when we gather for public worship. And, and, you know, we have this phrase, right? We have this saying, home is where the heart is. Home is where the heart is. And while we may be strangers and exiles right now, while we may be away from our true home heaven, while we're even away from the home, homeliness in a good way that we feel uh, when we gather together, but we get a taste of that home. We get a taste of our heavenly home when we're together in small groups and large gatherings and encounter. Our home is found when we gather together because God reveals his heart to us there. Home is where the heart is. And our home is found when we gather together, and that's the place that God reveals his heart. What spiritual relationships are you pursuing in this season? On the one hand, it's never been easier to join a small group or be in a discipleship opportunity because you don't need to get in the car and drive across town and get in a room and be on time and juggle responsibilities and get home from work and make dinner. At the same time, it's never been harder because clicking go on a Zoom room is really easy to skip. It's really easy to keep saying, when this is over, I'll be a part of a community. Well, it was easy to say that, what, four weeks ago? It's going to get harder and harder. You were made to be in community, and that's because God has placed in you this hunger to experience him that you can only do in a group. And, and, and I would say that even though Zoom is disappointing, and even though live streaming makes me want to come out of my head because it always seems to go wrong in some way, shape, or form, the reality is that something is better than nothing. But the full meal will be better than the something. I can't wait to be back together. Peter has this imagery of stone in verses uh, 6, 7, and 8. 
And, and it's this interesting little middle piece where he's trying to build a contrast because he says, as y'all come to him in, in verse 4, but in 6, 7, and 8, he's kind of explaining why not everyone comes to him. Uh, it says in verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, quote, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So he says, there is an honor for you who believe. There is an honor that comes from placing our faith in Jesus. And the honor is knowing our Father. The honor is in knowing that we will never be put to shame for sticking our necks out there for Jesus, so to speak. He says, the honor is for you who those believe. But for those who do not believe, another quote from the Old Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, quote, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. See, he says the unbelievers, those who do not place their faith in Jesus, stumble because they disobey the word. See, I think sometimes we have this tendency to forget that the gospel of Jesus, that the life of Jesus isn't just this open invitation. It's also a challenge. And so we read all of these beautiful identity statements here in verses 4 and 5, and then again in 9 and 10, and we think, doesn't everybody want this? And Peter's trying to let them know, hey, your friends and neighbors that are kind of treating you with this not outright persecution, but this kind of strange sideways look, it's, become, it's because Jesus has become a stumbling block from them. He, he, there's an offense to the message of Jesus. And then he says something that, quite frankly, we just don't have time to get into. He says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. There's some sort of divine outworking of God's plan, even as some people place their faith in Jesus and others don't. But he's trying on some level. It's not that Peter wants his readers to ignore the non-Christians in in their lives. In fact, he's going to say that he's saved us to proclaim the excellencies of him in just a second. But I almost sense in this a, a, a Peter saying, can you keep your eyes on your own paper for just a second and not use what the non-Christians over there and non-Christians over there are doing and just focus in on who God's called you to be, the family and the house that you're a part of, and, and what that means. Because he goes on to say in verse 9, he's talking about all these non-Christians, but y'all, so back to you, back to Team Jesus for a second, but y'all are a chosen race. This is Old Testament language a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At some sort of theological story of Jesus level, what Peter is saying to these Gentile Christians is that the covenant promises of the Old Testament are, are being fulfilled in their midst as they are now people of God. See, the, the vision that God gave Abraham in Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis, was that there would be a multi-ethnic family through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Peter is saying to these readers then, that's y'all. And in fact, he applies specific phrases that God used to describe his own people to them. He says that they are a chosen race. God calls his people that to let them know out of all of the nations of the earth, he had picked them. And in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter six, he says, you're going to ask, why did I choose you? And God's answer is, because I did. We are a chosen race. Even now, you and I, spiritual fam, we're a chosen race. The word race, interesting, right? That the people of God are almost a new ethnicity, a chosen race, 
a royal priesthood. We'll get back to that in a second. We're a holy nation. In other words, our identity and loyalty to Jesus supersedes that of any flag. And that the way that we set ourselves apart is not with American exceptionalism. We're better than everybody else, so here we come on five mission trips to save you. The way that we set ourselves apart is in our holiness, is in the difference of living, the very difference of living that's causing Peter's readers to kind of be looked at strange. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's language of of deep belonging, of treasuring his people. And Peter is saying to them and to us, that's how God views us. We've been grafted into his people. You once weren't a people, Gentiles, just roaming around out there, but now you are. You're God's special people. Once you weren't objects of mercy, but now you have received mercy. And therefore, he says, all of this has happened that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. I've been kind of toying with a blog post in my head about preaching and the emphasis on preaching in First Peter because do you notice that over and over and over again, Peter keeps talking about how it's the proclamation and preaching of God's word and the good news of Jesus that causes new birth. I looked this up in the Greek, by the way, and it doesn't say, a people for his own possessions, that you may pay professionals who will proclaim the excellence of of him who called you out of the darkness. No. It says so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. I wonder how you've seen, oh, this would be fun. In the comments, why don't you take a minute of this live stream and proclaim God's excellencies to each other? In the comments of this video, take a second and share how God has been excellent in your life this week. What is an excellency of God? His goodness, his care, his provision, his protection, a good night's sleep, a good meal. How have you seen God's excellencies? I can't wait to see and read them. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But it's that phrase, royal priesthood, that I want to stick on for just the last couple minutes that we're together. Because Peter has now called us twice in these verses priests. He's called us priests. This is one of those moments where um, if if you grew up Roman Catholic... When we get close to the New Testament, we see maybe some unwiring of what we were kind of raised to think. And so I want to invite you to pay attention and hear uh, what does the Bible mean when it uses the word priest, not what is conjured up in my mind, um, as we engage with this, because this is huge. Some of you don't even know what the word priest is. Uh, some of you, when, I, when we went to high school together, when you knew I wanted to be a pastor, you, your first question was, does that mean you can get married? Yes. Okay. We're priests. When the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther being one of the first, started engaging uh, in reading scripture, 
he found this doctrine right off the pages of scripture or rediscovered this doctrine right off the pages of scripture that revolutionized Christianity. And the doctrine we call is the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. The, the Protestant Reformation rallied around these verses, calling people to take up their identity and their calling that came into this. See, they had come to receive, uh, come to understand through about a thousand years of church history that priests were a special class of people. But what Peter is saying is that priesthood is for all of us. Now, let me be clear. Let me be clear about something. First of all, a priest represents people to God and represents God to the people. If you're taking notes, I would write that down. A priest represents the people to God and represents God to the people. And so priesthood of all believers does not mean that there isn't a role for godly leadership in the church. Every believer is a priest, but some of them have been given a special calling to devote more of their time, attention, and resources to that. So it doesn't mean that there isn't a role for godly, qualified leadership in local churches. Churches need qualified, prayerful, godly, qualified leadership from men and women who are committed to the mission and vision of the church. We need that. So priesthood of all believers isn't saying, let's get rid of any kind of leadership structure. It also doesn't mean that I'm a priest unto myself, right? It doesn't mean I am my own priest. What it means is that you need me. God has set up the church such that you need me, not Pastor Kyle, just Kyle, a guy. You need me to represent you to God and to represent God to you. And I need you. I need Joey and Julia and Art and Pam and Holden. I need you to represent me to God and represent God to me. What does that look like? I need you to represent, God, represent me to God by interceding for me in prayer. Not that God wouldn't smite my weary soul, but in the sense that some of you frequently reach out and say, how can I pray for you today? We are called to lift one another up and hold one another up in prayer. I represent you to God, not by asking him to turn his anger away from you. Jesus has done that, but by seeing the things that you're walking through in your life and going to God and saying, God, would you please move in this person's life in this area? I need you to represent me to God, to be lifting me up in prayer. I'm called to lift you up in intercessory prayer. And not just to do that from a distance. Not just to do that, I'm going to send a text and at a distance, but to pick up the phone and to pray with me. I'm trying to kill in my, this habit that we all have ingrained in us of, um, oh yeah, sure, You'll, someone will say to me, Let's, would you be praying about that? And I'll say, oh sure. An honest confession from me, both as a human and as a pastor, if I don't stop and pray with you in that very moment, I probably don't pray for you at all. Because my life moves on and my mind wanders over here and all of the details slip out. What I'm trying to do is when someone asks me to intercede for them and with them in prayer, that I stop what I'm doing and I do it right there. And if you want to radically change your prayer life, just do that. Stop and pray for that request as soon as you receive it. When something comes up over a text or an email or in a Facebook group, stop right there and pray 
dare I say, out loud. I need you to represent me to God. I represent you to God as, as priests together. But I also need you to represent God to me. It's my calling to represent God to you. And at its baseline level, what that means is when you look at me, I'm trying to build into my life and pursue Jesus in such a way that when you look at me, you see God. You see Jesus. Now use the comments to tell me on a scale of 1 to 10 how I'm doing. Please, please, please don't do that. It's a call on my character to represent God to you. So that when you're having a conversation with me, you're not just having it with me. It's as if God is speaking and working through me. I need you to represent God to me that when I confess sin to you, you remind me of the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for me on the cross. That when I need encouragement, that you remind me of the faithfulness and kindness of God. That's what it means to represent God. This idea of the priesthood of all believers is not the Bible's way, not Peter's way of simply saying that we need one another, move on. This is the Bible's way of saying that every follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus has been called to ministry. That every follower of Jesus has been given the spiritual authority and the privilege that was once reserved for a few that every follower of Jesus has been given the spiritual authority and the privilege that was once reserved for just a few, and that we have the responsibility as members of God's family to exercise that authority on the behalf of one another. And we do this, that when we gather together in small groups or large groups, that when we operate in our giftedness and pursue our callings, the whole community gets stronger. It's for the edification is the old-fashioned word of the body. You and I are equally called to be priests. And leaders arise. God chooses leaders when God calls them to operate in and exercise their priesthood in a unique way. But notice this. Everyone has this access. Everyone has access to the same spiritual resources, is called to the same responsibility, and exercises that authority by their obedience. And while it's my special calling to be among you as a pastor and a leader full-time, I don't have a secret connection to God that you don't have or don't have access to. I don't have a red phone on my desk, for those of you old enough to know that. Taken together, let me end here. Taken together, Jesus, uh, Jesus wants us to know something really important about what it is to walk in his kingdom way, and he's using Peter's letter to tell us this. When we gather together, in small groups or in large groups, right now it's mostly small groups, the presence of God graces and blesses us in a way that we only experience when we bring our living stones together. We become a dwelling place for God, a place where his presence is focused in a specific way. And as priests, we represent each other to God and God to each other so that as we gather in the operation of our giftedness, we're pointing each other's eyes to Jesus. We're pointing each other to that presence. And as we bring our whole selves into that gathering, whether it's in person or in a Zoom call or in a phone, or in a phone call, 
We have a unique ability, hear me, we have a unique ability to point one another and draw one another into God's presence. This text is a call to participation. This text is a call to participation. And here's actually the way I want to go is I just want to celebrate with you, those of you that are doing the hard work of carving out time in the midst of an endless blob of time. It feels like today is March 1 millionth is what it feels like, not April, whatever it is, 26th. I want to celebrate and say like, yes, to those of you that are carving out time, that are coming together as living temples, that are coming together, that are coming together as priests to bless one another and encourage one another. And I want to use that celebration just as an invitation to say to those of you who haven't found your way into a group, who haven't been reaching out on this time to do so because you're missing out and the ache that you feel, the ache that you feel and what we're missing can be satisfied maybe just a little bit by being together. So whether you're introverted or extroverted, whether you're an internal processor or a verbal processor, or you're an Enneagram, one, five, seven, nine, three, two, or four, I don't even know if I got all the numbers, six, eight, God's created you to be a part of his living temple, to experience his presence, to point one another to that, and my invitation is for you to participate in that way in the days and weeks ahead, because here's why. I'll say this and then I'll really be done. The church is about, what it means to be the church is about to be redefined and is in the process of being redefined right now. The post-COVID-19 church will be radically different than the pre-COVID-19 church. And I think one of the ways that it will be different is that churches will be defined by small groups, not by large gatherings, but by small groups. And so as a leadership team, that's what we're pressing into. I just wanna let you know, that's what we're pressing into. Not small groups as optional, but small groups as everything but required. Because this is what it means for us to be temples of the living God and priests to one another. Let me pray. Jesus, um, thank you for this sacred calling that you have made possible through the life and death and uh, for your, through your life and your death and your resurrection. We are powerless. We are powerless to do these things by ourselves, but you have made it possible through the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. And so I pray that you would stir up in our community a hunger for community, that you would stir up um, a, a distaste for convenience, a distaste for apathy, that you would stir up um, a, an embracing of the uncomfortable so that we might be the temple of your presence in this world, proclaiming to all who hear of your excellencies. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.